Hey there, something new. It's the Mariners Week that was on 710 ESPN Seattle. Shannon Dreyer here with a new off-season project, or not-so-off-season as I like to call it, but off enough to be able to finally do this. If you don't know, we have got a ton of good Mariners content on the station all week long, and I thought it would be great to get it all in one place at the end of each week, so if you miss something, I can point you in the right direction. So this podcast is going to feature interviews, clips, uh, conversations that were had on the air. We'll hear from hosts, broadcasters, Casters, analysts, writers, outside guests, players as well. And uh, it will all be in one place. I'll do the heavy lifting for you. Either you can hear the full interview here or we'll refer you to where it is on the web page. But uh, it's all going to be in one place. And if you missed anything, I have got you covered. Now, what a great week to start because it was quite eventful on so many different fronts. If you missed anything, it's all in here. And we're just going to go chronologically on uh, different guests and different conversations that were had on the shows throughout the week. I want to let you know that uh, every interview, every conversation can be found on 710sports.com on the podcast page. Each show has their own page on that. And you can go back and listen to different shows, different hours. It's all on there, but we will have the links in the post that accompanies this podcast, as well as links to the articles that uh, also contain the audio that uh, we refer to right here. So uh, I'm going to bring you clips and full interviews here, and also where I can, if I can fill in any blanks, give you a little bit of background, I will do that as well. Now we start this week on Wednesday, which of course was the first day without baseball, with the World Series wrapping up the night before. On the Mike Salk Show, uh, Mike had uh, kind of an interesting uh, approach, an interesting look at what Mariners fans are facing right now. Hope you're having a good Wednesday morning, getting ready for the day. World Series champions last night, the Atlanta Braves getting the win. Russell Wilson throwing. If you haven't seen it yet, we will talk through it a little bit. Russell is officially throwing. Get to that story here in just a moment because obviously it's huge, about as big a local news as you could get. But when teams win championships, especially World Series, there is there is uh, a, a you know, reverence that needs to be paid. You got to pay your respects to the Atlanta Braves. They only won eighty eight games this year, two fewer than the Seattle Mariners did. But that was enough for them. I will also say that the Mariners are in the second best position. If if you love sports, there's nothing better than having just won a championship. That that ride is incredible. To me, the second best thing as a sports fan is overcoming immense adversity and getting to the top of the mountain. And the Mariners have certainly put themselves in that spot of overcoming adversity and getting to the top. And I, I know people get mad about the Boston thing, but Moore and I uh, can both kind of relate to this, I, I think, which is the two the two great moments I had in my sports fandom before I moved here and 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 took on the the Mariners and the Seahawks and et cetera as my teams were overcoming you know, the curse of the Bambino and all of the years of heartache and aggravation that it was to be a Red Sox fan, one. And two, the Patriots winning the Super Bowl in 2001, 2002 season, or 2001, 2002 Super Bowl, after being the worst franchise in sports for most of my lifetime leading up to that. Yeah, it's great when your team wins a championship, but it is so much sweeter when your entire sports fandom life led up to it. I never saw any of the teams I truly loved win championships until I was out of college, okay? 
So I, I know Boston now is like the worst place on earth because of the obnoxious sports fans and all the titles and everything else. Growing up, I rooted for the Red Sox, the Patriots, and the Bruins. Okay? None of them won squat. None of them won a thing. No, it wasn't like the Mariners. They did go to the playoffs. I get it. The Bruins got twice to the, to the Stanley Cup, got swept both times. When they finally won after I had moved out here, it, was, it felt like a lifetime of heartache had finally been rewarded. Same with the Red Sox in 04, same with the Patriots in 01. Trust me, when the Mariners do get over the hump, and I honestly believe that they are on the path to do that, it will be even better than if every year had been, had been peaches and roses right up to it. Trust me, it will be better. Because for the Braves, next year won't be as good. The year after that won't be as good. Guys are going to have to get paid. This group is going to get broken up. Egos start to come into it. It's almost like watching the Seahawks in 2015 and beyond. That's where it goes. It's never as fun as that initial climb to the top of the mountain. Never. So congratulations to the Braves. You're there now. For their fans, it will get worse, I promise, because it can't get better. (laughs) It will get worse for the Atlanta Braves and their fans. And guess what? It's going to continue to get better for the Seattle Mariners and all of us fans of that team. All right, I didn't even get to Russ. Russ is throwing, for God's sakes, and we barely even talked about it. I will tell you more about it tell you everything you need to know next. Mike Salk Show, 710 ESPN Seattle. Good, and I suppose somewhat daunting perspective there in that uh, if they do make it, when they do make it, that's the pinnacle. It never gets any better. That's hard. What do you do at that point? I don't know. I think we'll go ahead and choose to not worry about that right now. But I think just a huge point about that, and I sometimes think that this does get missed with some Mariners fans, and I guess I'm almost using the term loosely because I think they're a little bit lost in their fandom, but they get so tied up in the negative and everything that hasn't happened. I hope they don't miss what happens as it happens if they indeed are going in that direction because Mike is absolutely right and this of course comes from you know, a, a lifelong Cubs fan it's when you break through you want to make sure that you have experienced all of that so interesting words from Mike and uh, he of course has a little bit of experience in that department coming from Boston now in addition to kind of that little I don't know, a little baseball life lesson there, I think we will call it. Uh, Salk did get into his thoughts on a plan for the offseason. What would he like to see? It is now time for the Mariners to start thinking about what they're going to do in this offseason. I think it is about as important as it gets for the Mariners, as important as it's been in the history of this franchise, certainly since they were able to stay here in the, in the mid-'90s. And unlike free agent shopping and football, there's very little reason to show any restraint, right? We have that debate about, our oh, well, what should, the, uh, what should the Rams do? Is it a problem for them to trade away these picks or to sign all these players? And Stacy mentioned the, uh, the credit card analogy, and, uh, you know, it's a familiar one for good reason. You can't afford everything in a salary cap world like the NFL. Eventually, that's going to come back to bite you. The same thing was true for the Kraken as they were going through their offseason. Every dollar you spend now is a dollar you can't spend later. But that's not true in baseball. And the Mariners have plenty of money, so there is no reason for them to show restraint. They can be in on everybody. There's no cap. You do have to be a little bit mindful of positions and blocking the growth of some of your young talent. So there are probably some specific directions you'll want to go. But other than that, you can add as much talent as you want. There's no such thing as too much pitching. There's no such thing as too much hitting. Like You can just get as good as you want to be. So I see probably four positions that are of the most importance for them this offseason. 
third base, second base, starting pitcher, and catcher. Those would be the four spots I would really like to see them upgrade. They could probably use some veteran outfield help. I mean, like, there's other things they could do to, to help improve their squad. But my, my read on it is third base, second base, starting pitcher, and catcher. Okay? So who are you going to go get for those spots? Well, we've talked a lot about second base. Marcus Semien, to me, leads the pack. 31 years old, coming off an incredible season, understands the AL West, uh, just a good, solid hitter, plays good defense. I, I don't think he will be as expensive as some of the other big shortstops that are out there. Obviously, Correa and Seager, I think, are out of your league. I don't think either are coming here. I think Baez is an intriguing one, and certainly his name will be on this list as well. But I, my, my money would be focused first on Marcus Semien to come here and, and fit in with, with Crawford at short and him at second base, I think you would have a really good up-the-middle combo for the next few years, and, and hopefully that's a reasonable thing that you could go after. Now, maybe the market goes crazy for him. Maybe you're not able to compete. Maybe he just wants to stay in Toronto or something else like that, and there's nothing you can do. But I would be spending my money on, first off, Marcus Semien, and if that doesn't work out, Javier Baez. So that, that would be my first spot. Number two. And this is where I'm going to give you a name that maybe you haven't thought of before, but I think he would be a really interesting fit with the Mariners. And that's at third base. You've got to you've got to not just replace Kyle Seager, you've got to find somebody to be an upgrade there. Okay? Now, Abraham Toro, decent start, right? Came out here, looked really good when he first showed up in Seattle, showed that maybe there's something there. Third base is his natural position. But I would agree with what Shannon Dreyer said on this air a couple days ago, which is that I don't think he's done enough to earn that job. Doesn't mean you don't give him an opportunity to compete for it, and he can play both second and third, and he's a good backup option if some of what you're trying to do doesn't work. But I believe that he has not earned that job. You have the opportunity to go improve. You should go do that. I don't think anybody would disagree with you. All right. So who are you going to go get to play third? Now, you could go with one of the shortstops and try to put them there, right? You could be it could be Trevor Story, who probably would be a good fit moving from short to third. Um, there are a couple of third basemen that are out there. Chris Bryant is a name that you will hear a lot. I don't think he's a, a realistic opportunity, but certainly that's a name that, that I know a lot of Mariners fans are excited about, and I know the Mariners like him, so that is probably somebody that they will be in on and attempt to get. I just don't know that it'll happen. If you can't get Bryant and you don't want to go after two of these other kids like Story, then let me give you two trade candidates. We've talked about Jose Ramirez. His name has been out there a lot because, you know, it's Cleveland and they have, you know, seem to deal players like that so that they can get value back. You'd have to give up a lot to get him because of his age. He's young, because he's cheap. He's on a very team-friendly deal. So if you wanted to pry him out of Cleveland, you would have to bowl them over, right? It would probably involve three prospects that you were already familiar with. Not not Julio, not Kelnick, but three prospects whose names you know. Probably Nuelvi Marte and then two of your good pitchers. Okay? Yeah. Maybe that gets it done for Jose Ramirez. He'd be very expensive. Okay. But unbelievably, unbelievable player. So that's one one player and one option. Let me give you the other name though, and I don't know whether you've thought about this one or not, because I don't I don't heard his name out there, but the Oakland A's just lost their manager bob melvin finally jumped ship it's like i'm done i don't want to deal with this anymore Mm -hmm. there has been incredible speculation that billy bean will not continue there at some point the a's are just they're they're done and they're going to trade more of their players and have to kind of start over but that's always been their mo 
but I think even more so if they end up losing sort of the names that have made them in their coaching staff and in their front office. You going where I think you're going with this? Would you be interested in Matt Chapman? Yes. He had a bad year last year. I would absolutely be interested in Matt Chapman. He wasn't very good last year, right? But don't you think Matt Chapman's a really intriguing possibility if you could find a way to swing a deal for him? I don't think he would cost as much as as, uh, Jose Ramirez because he's coming off a pretty bad year for him. Now, let me also be clear about something. In his bad year, he was much better than Kyle Seager. He's been a Mariner killer, too. He was much better than Seager this year. I, I Like, look at his war. Kyle Seager, two war this year. Matt Chapman, any guesses? Three and a half. On a bad year? Huh. On a bad year for him. And he's 28. His war by season, if you throw out 2020, he only played in 37 games last year. Okay? His rookie, he was 3.2. 2018, 7.6. I have to get away. Hold on. can't tell if that's a 6 or an 8. 7.6. Getting old. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, 2019, 7.7, 2020, kind of a loss. You know, you can't really look at war because it's a cumulative thing. And then last year in his down year, three and a half. Okay. Yeah. His batting average was awful 210, but he still got on base 31% of the time, slugged 400 and had an OPS over 700, which is obviously way down for him, but he plays gold glove third base and, and does all of that. It'll be 28 years or 29 years old when the season starts next year. It'll be his age 29 season. With those stretches of struggling to hit last year, I just don't know if you want to go out. If you're going out shopping and you're like, let's go get the guy, do you really want someone that was struggling to hit? I think that he had a Even bad year. Even if he gets year. on base. They had a lot of guys that would get on base but not hit last year. But what happened? So so maybe this isn't your first day target, like day one of, uh, of, of hot stove season here in a couple days. It starts in five days. What if you make an attempt for Chris Bryant? No go. Okay? Didn't work out. You try to deal for Jose Ramirez, but he's so expensive that you've got to give up. Either he doesn't want to come, they don't want to trade him, or you just can't pull it off. And Story signs somewhere else. And you like Baez or you like Semyon at second. You get one of them, but you still need a third baseman. You still need somebody with some pop. You don't think having Matt Chapman is down year last year. You're right, Mora. He still had 27 home runs. He had 36 in 2019 playing in a hit in a pitcher's ballpark. You bring him here? Put him in a good lineup. Now, he had Matt Olson behind him. Like he had some advantages last year. He won't even have to face Paul Seawald's slider again. Think about what that could do for Matt Chapman if he were here. So I like it. I, I think it would be a name that I'm at least going to follow hey, this offseason. I've off always really liked Matt Chapman. I'm curious to see whether or not they would move him. I don't have any information on that other than that I think he's interesting. Matt Chapman. Where have I heard that name before? Kind of funny behind-the-scenes story here. That day on Wednesday is when Howdy and I taped the latest edition of the Talking Baseball podcast. And as we were finishing that up, Salk came into the podcast studio to record the Brock and Salk podcast. And we were talking baseball, and he said, hey, yeah, I, just, I don't know that anybody's talked about this. And, you know, really kind of got excited about it. But Matt Chapman and Howdy and I just looked at each other because if you do follow our podcast, you know that I teased a move in uh, the previous episode, and that move, of course, was Matt Chapman, and we had just finished recording about that. Not a great secret, I don't think. I think a lot of uh, folks were kind of looking, perhaps, at that uh, being a possibility for the Mariners, particularly when it became apparent that the A's were uh, starting to tear down. And make no mistake, they are tearing down. We covered that uh, in the podcast. In fact, if you want to hear a little bit about that, uh, go on a little bit of a rant here. In terms of trade targets, we mentioned Jose Ramirez last week. 
Are there any other names that you think we should be looking for? You made a big old tease well, at the end of last episode. Yeah, and I think it's all come out ever since then. <laughs> and it was confirmed by a huge move that it was kind of shocking to some, but it, it gelled with some things that I had heard during the season. The Oakland A's are tearing down. It is fire sale. And it's there. time for them. It's time for them to do it. They just they don't have enough that they can hang their hat on to say, this is a baseline we can move up from here without spending money, and they don't do that. So it, it was time. It had come to the end. The magic was over. They do need to tear down. And Bob Melvin saw the signs on the wall they weren't going to spend. Well, it's an absolute mess. And I, I, I feel for everybody in that organization, and I feel for all of the fans. And this is something, if you're a Mariners fan, you, you complain about the owners as much as you want. But that is an organization that does not spend money. And that is an organization that is aggressively trying to leave right now. That doubled the prices of their season tickets uh, last year, which is just absolutely brutal, that let the best manager, one of the best managers in the game, walk uh, for basically the same amount of money, just they didn't want to pay it to him this year. It is. We're tearing everything down. We're trying to get that stadium in Las Vegas, and it, it's all about the dollars and always has been. And when you talk about it's time to tear down, to what end? To what end? So they can build up again and win a wild card game or lose a wild card game and not get do. out of division That's uh, what they do. series. And as much as, you know, oh, the Mariners haven't been there for 20, 21 years, do you want to constantly be doing that? No, but that's what they do. And that's what they will do until they get a new ownership. Baseball forces a new ownership or they get themselves a sweetheart situation or the rules of the CBA change. And this may be coming. To the point where they have to change their trajectory because they just flat it's can't take brutal. advantage of it the finances. It is absolutely brutal. So what is going on? The offshoot of that. How do the Mariners and their third base hole play? They well, had a pretty good A's third baseman in Oakland who I'm sure is up for grabs right now with everybody else. We're talking about Matt Chapman. We are talking about Matt Chapman, and the thought there is the shorter term option if you believe that Noel V. Marte is going to be there in the next two years. And I think that that is something that they should take into consideration. And uh, Chapman, there are lots of candidates, but I think Chapman is a great fit. Of course, he had a very down year this year, but he's coming off of a major, major hip surgery. So I don't think that is to be too unexpected. Some of his peripherals were kind of strange. He was still hitting the ball. He was barreling up the ball pretty well, but uh, the swing and miss strikeouts, this is where it got a little strange in that he, he was missing pitches in the zone. I mean, that is something that would have to get ironed out, but he's got two... Uh, beyond solid offensive years behind him. Uh, he is a gold glover, obviously, at third base. You would add him already to a very good defensive infield, and uh, he would be fun to watch over there every day. And uh, has, even though the numbers were down this year, still did have the power. I, I think that he could be of, of huge you know, intrigue for this Mariners team, among others. But that is a name uh, that I would think that they would consider if that is the route that they want to go and let me throw this out there they are going to throw and cast a wide net for the free agents it's not going to be chris bryant or bust it is not going to be marcus simeon or bust and they very well may go out there and throw a huge deal out there at the beginning to see if anybody jumps they are in a position where they can adapt to pretty much anything they bring in offensively right now so they are going to you know go after what makes them better offensively and go from there so this you know would be a little bit more planning in that you're looking at the longer term and what you believe you have coming up but I, I think that Chapman would possibly be a fit uh, there are others out there uh, Joey Wendell 
Also two years remaining on the contract, the Rays lone all-star. Not the lone. He was the additional. He was the all-star that uh, blocked J.P. Crawford as far as we are concerned. But that would also be somebody that for two years could more than hold down that position. Uh, you know, there are options. You mentioned uh, Ramirez, uh, Escobar, free agent. That is in. He's getting a little bit older, so you might not be looking at his long-term a deal. There are options, shorter-term options. I don't think you are definitely have to place a long-term big bat option there right now. To me, that doesn't excite me. That's not what Mariners fans are coming for. They're coming for what's the cornerstone piece you're going to bring in here. Well, yeah, and if you get a, a two-year guy at third base, you're getting your cornerstone at second base. So there, there's sort of the rub in all of this. Do you believe that the Mariners are going to approach this offseason and bring in a cornerstone player? That doesn't necessarily need to mean that they get a you know, a top-of-the-market free agent guy, but do you believe they're going to get a cornerstone player out of this free agent or this off-season market? Well, stay tuned, Hattie. We've got some good news for you on that in just a few minutes. So that, of course, was from the Talking Baseball podcast with Howdy and myself. All right, a little bit later in the day on Jake and Stacy. I know it's early, but we actually had some breaking off-season news. Some breaking news from the Seattle Mariners just a few minutes ago. The team has confirmed that it has declined its club option for Yusei Kikuchi. In addition, Kikuchi has informed the Mariners that he has elected to decline his player option, which would have been a $13 million, essentially one-year deal. That means that Kikuchi enters free agency, and by declining the options for Kyle Seeger and Kikuchi, the Mariners have freed up about, what would you say, Curtis, a little over $30 million? In, uh, uh, thirteen million 13 for million. Kikuchi and twenty million for Seager. About so thirty-three million. About thirty-three. Uh, so that is the latest from the Seattle Mariners. You say Kikuchi entering free agency, no longer a Seattle Mariner, with both the team and Kikuchi deciding there to part ways. Um, I'm really shocked about this. First and foremost, I want to. I know that Kikuchi's run here in Seattle did not go. You know, according to plan, and 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 did not live up to the expectations that everybody had, and. You know, it's 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 unfortunate, and it's such a bizarre year for him to go from being an all-star to, you know, everyone essentially wanting him to be no longer a Mariner um, in his production, and, and it's been a wild up-and-down career here in with the Mariners for Yusei Kikuchi. Um, but I do want to give him a, a thank you for this year, for without that first-half performance from Yusei Kikuchi, Mariners wouldn't have had the season that they had this year. I mean... Going to Toronto, the Blue Jays, and and some of the performances he put in that first half were absolutely incredible, and it, it got them the some of the wins that they needed. So that that was this is the first thought that I had. Second thought that I had was, I mean, are you guys shocked? Are you guys really surprised that he did not, at the very least, take that player option mm. and at least get a buyout from that situation? I mean, it could be that he just believes that a fresh start with a different team. He'd he'd get either a better deal or just a, a chance to, I don't I don't know maybe for him it was just the end of the road too. By the way, if, if you're just now joining us and and you're confused as to why we aren't doing NFL headlines, we'll get to those later today if if we have a bit of time. But obviously the breaking news and the relevant news locally is that the Mariners have confirmed they have declined the club option for Yusei Kikuchi. That would have been a four-year option. And Kikuchi has informed the Mariners that he has elected to decline his one-year player option and will enter free agency. Curtis, what do you think? Boy, I mean, yeah, you've got $13 million guaranteed to you if you want to exercise this. And he said no. And that, to me, is just... 
it is so surprising considering the end of the season that he had. I mean, you'd think that would be the kind of money that somebody who struggled to the finish line the way he did, that's something that you would take and, and you would run away with. But yeah. to you say, apparently there maybe there's a better landing spot for him out there. Maybe he decides to go back to Japan. I don't know what his mind is in this moment, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's surprising to me for sure. I, what I do hope, though, is that the Mariners use this $13 million in pursuit of somebody who can either A, fill that spot in the rotation or, or maybe somewhere else in the lineup. I don't want to see them pocket this money. Correct. I mean, absolutely. You, they're not, you can't pocket this money. You have to be aggressive. And the first thing that I would do, quite honestly, to shore up that rotation is I would be calling Tyler Anderson and I'd be saying, hey, it's time to come back. Let's let's get a deal done. Let's lock that spot up and then get really aggressive in terms of who is going to be your ace to represent the Mariners in 2022. So that, to me, is what really stands out. And this was a huge, honestly, from a financial standpoint, from a roster construction standpoint, this is a big win for the Mariners um, with Yusei Kikuchi not electing to uh, take his, his uh, one-year player option. It frees them up for for more moves and for better moves down the road. So, um, again, like you mentioned, Curtis, there's part of it where maybe he did not want to run the risk of he takes that 13-million player player option and then he's at the mercy of the Mariners to trade him to somebody and he doesn't have a choice as to where he goes. He wants control of his future, whether to which team he is going to go to in Major League Baseball or what I think personally and would make a ton of sense is you know, Yusei Kikuchi, uh, you know, tried the big, you know, tried Major League Baseball, and hey, it just didn't work out. And instead of trying to find a new home in in, in the MLB, go back to Japan, you know, finish your career out on a high note in Japan. And and so I could very easily see that be the desired outcome of Yusei in this situation. I mean, it's certainly a nice break for the Seattle Mariners, a, a team that would have been wanting to spend and electing to spend on other guys to 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 fill some of those spots and, and add a bat here and there, add multiple bats. Uh, and, and instead, they would have been on the hook for $13 million for a pitcher that was struggling, that they opted to skip a day uh, in the rotation to skip over him when it really mattered most at the end of the season. It's it's almost like he's, he kind of like gave you a break. <laughs> you're like, I, like I, I, think you're, I mean, it's, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you're, you're right. Maybe he, maybe he would like to go, uh, you know, um, pitch back in Japan or, or maybe he wants to just try out another area and get a fresh start. Who knows what it is, but but you're right. I mean, it would have been $13 million for him that he could have claimed and, and, you know, too bad, so sad for the Mariners. Instead, they catch a break. Mm-hmm. They do. They catch a huge break in this. And, uh, Curtis, as your sentiments, I mean, I, I think that when you're looking at this, this is a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity, and don't waste it. Do not waste it. And you have – your payroll is so incredibly small – you have no excuse not to be aggressive, extremely aggressive, and to be comfortable being aggressive this offseason. And if you have to overpay for a guy like Marcus Simeon, if you have to overpay for a guy like Chris Bryant, you still have so much money left over to continue to keep adding. It's not even funny. So this is a, this is good news for this group, and you can legitimately see them. That you could legitimately see them uh, add. I, you know, some serious key pieces here uh, and continue to keep, look, you can add a Simeon, you can add a Chris Bryant, you can add um, a legit starting pitcher, you could add to your outfield. 
um, and it really not even you still have more money to to maneuver if you want to be just middle of the road in the payroll in Major League Baseball or around you know the top ten in payroll. They've got so much money to work with right now. I mean, it's 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 pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it adds only additional intrigue to an offseason that was already going to be pretty fascinating for the Seattle Mariners. I, You know what's so funny is earlier we were talking about, oh, you know, we could find out here pretty soon about Yusei Kikuchi and whether or not they decline that option. And, Jake, you were like, well, I'd make that decision today. I mean, what's, <laughs> what's, what's to waste time about it? I feel like the decision is obviously to decline it. Uh, and look at you. You got your wish. Look at that. Yeah, I mean, let's not let's not mess around, right? I mean, let's not mess around. Let's not play this song and dance if we don't have to. And and very clearly, both sides, both the organization and the player, were on the same page. And and you know, it's unfortunate that it worked out this way because you say is so talented in terms of what he can do as a left-handed pitcher, but. I, it just obviously did not work out here in Seattle, and this gives them a huge, huge opportunity to really, really add to this group and to have more money, more flexibility. Jerry Depoto and that crew, it's it's time, man. Make the most of it. Let's go. Well, and I, I again, I get reasons for doubt. I completely understand it. Larry Stone of the Seattle Times summing it up here in, in a way that I think is a, a very simple way to sum it up. Ryan Divish said, you know, the news about Kikuchi not exercising his option being a gift for Mariners who would have had to pay him $13 million. Larry Stone says, very true, but it will only be a gift to fans if they spend that money to improve the team, which I have a hard time thinking they won't at least spend more than they did last offseason. I mean, do you, uh, genuine question. Yes. Is there legit fear that they will not spend this $13 million? I think what it, no, I think that, there's a little bit of being facetious there, but I think that there is a legit fear that they will not spend as much as people think. I think it's twofold. I think there's fear that they won't be willing to overspend for free agents in order to convince them to come play for Seattle, which, sorry, you're going to have to do. Like, there's going to be people that are going to need to just see more money to decide to come play for the Mariners. Uh, or there is a fear that they will not really be all in. Mm that they'll make some additions, but it won't be an all-in. Yeah, that the payroll will increase to, I don't know, because it was, what, $80 million this year? Mm-hmm. That it'll increase to $95 million. Which would still be one, two, three, about $40 million below league average. And I know that league average is heavily skewed because of the top, what, five teams, but but it, it's still less than I think the average Mariners fan would like to see. Yeah, I, and I totally get that. I totally get that. But I, I just feel like this group. I mean, we'll, we'll see how they go about it. Um, but they, the, you have to put your expectations under control as well. Just because they have this thirteen million dollars doesn't mean that they're going to go out and sign every top tier player at positions of need, right? You're going to have to continue to keep working through it. So that's why I asked the question to you guys. You know, is Matt Chapman somebody that you would like? Because he's not somebody. If you trade for him, he's not a he he's not a top tier player. Is he a really is he a good, really good, solid third baseman that has high upside? Yeah, he is, but he's not the best third baseman on the market. Are you going to be okay with that? In in conjunction with some of the other moves, like I I, I get the understanding of the money aspect of it, but if they they don't need to hit X number for me to be happy, they need to make the right moves. They need to make moves that make sense. They need to make moves that truly upgrade this team and to be aggressive and to go after every single positional need and not try to say, oh, well, 
we're going to let development take control of this. We're going to give this guy a shot and opportunity, and that is what they've promised. They have promised that they'll be aggressive in, in adding to this team. They have promised that there's going to be no gimmies, that it will be all competitive competition as to who gets on that roster, and that means you are adding tremendous depth, tremendous talent to this group. Jake and Stacy had me on later in the day and asked if I thought that this would be the offseason where they went above and beyond. And I was actually kind of surprised that there was any question about it. But yeah, there has been question about it. And this, of course, was before some things came out a little bit later in the week. But uh, I, I thought that the Mariners and Jerry DePoto had been pretty clear that they were going to spend, that Jerry had been given the clearance to spend this offseason. And I certainly understand where people are like, show me uh, absolutely show me you know it's one thing to have the dollars there it's the other to be able to actually land the players you are looking to land it's another thing to be looking for the players and to not have the dollars which i believe is what happened last year uh, after kind of a, a little bit of a perhaps a switcheroo as far as what the budget would be going into the off season but that is behind us now so again uh, will they spend well that's certainly the plan as far as we know now one further note on the surprise kikuchi move um i think we were all very much surprised by that some folks weren't and they thought that getting booted in the final 10 days of the season probably sealed it for kikuchi he wouldn't want to return in that situation i have heard some uh, say that but i think for the most part and those that covered the team i think we were pretty surprised that he would turn down 13 million dollars and the opportunity to uh, you know, just try and get it all together next year while earning that big paycheck. We know Scott Boris is his agent. I would imagine he would encourage him to do that. I don't think that Scott thinks he can get him a better deal for one year. Perhaps he can get a, a multi-year deal at that number, but um, it was a surprise. And uh, the more I thought about it, yeah, I guess that does sort of make sense that uh, if he was offended uh, by the move or just, you know, discouraged by the move would probably be a better word. I still thought that when cooler heads prevailed there, he would take that that option. It's a good player option, but he didn't. And uh, since he turned down that option, there's been a lot of speculation. Does he go back to Japan? And I can tell you that I've talked with a number of people that are somewhat close to Kikuchi. They were surprised that he turned it down. And the feeling is, although nobody knows for certain, the feeling is is that he will try to land something in the U.S., that it was not his intent to go back to Japan. And of course, that, again, is, is not anything that I have on a concrete basis. It's just the feeling uh, of folks that were around him. So we will wait and see what happens uh, for the future with Yusei Kikuchi, but it, it will not be with the Seattle Mariners. Now, the next show up, of course, was Wyman and Bob with Bob out all week uh, today or on that Wednesday. It was a Wyman and producer Mike Lefko who took over, and they had the good fortune of, of having a Mariner interview. And it's a Mariner that I hope folks get to know better. This is somebody that uh, not only was impressive on the field, but uh, just seemed to be an incredibly impressive person as well. And we're talking about Casey Sadler here. And if you are on social media, you've probably gotten to know him a little bit that way. Uh, something that really impressed me about him, and it's, it's uh, really a remarkable story. He grew up in Oklahoma. He's from Oklahoma. 
And uh, he has a relative, I believe it is his sister-in-law, who lives out here. He actually picked up his family and moved to Seattle during the pandemic. And that is not while he was with a team. He had yet to land with the Mariners. But he had decided, and he and his wife had decided, that this is where they wanted to be. And as luck would have it, shortly after, he was actually claimed by the Mariners. So a great story about things working out. But anytime you have an athlete that says, yeah, I I like it here, I'm buying in, literally buying a house here, living here all off season and enjoying it and uh, sending out the social media post about where do I eat, where do I hike, what do we do, and just really jumping in with both feet. You love to see that. So, uh, you know, just even with everything that he's done on the field, has been absolutely fantastic, more so when you learn a little bit more about how he's invested in the community, those around him, and uh, just a good, good guy. Here's that interview. All right, welcome back to the Wyman and Bob Show, and now on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline, we have Mariner pitcher Casey Sadler. Casey, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Well, we're doing great, and it's it's really good talking to you. You know, it's funny. This year, we got so invested in this team. You guys were so easy to like, and when the season ended, we we're like, ah, oh, we're just so disappointed. And and we'll get to this later, but we've we've got it filled in with a little bit of hockey right now. So that's kind of you know helping us out a little bit. But you guys were so much fun to watch this year, and it was just kind of a it, did it. It looked like a special team to me, Casey, that you guys had, you know, something going that was just different. It was like you guys loved each other. You had fun playing baseball. Tell, tell us about the, the chemistry of that team. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a great group of guys. I know we were all heartbroken at the end of it when um, everything was all said and done. And, you know, we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and into that. And, uh, yeah, it just – you know, it was a really good clubhouse. I've had my fair share of clubhouses in my career, and and um, this year was probably the most fun, if not up there at the top um, of those of those clubhouses. So, um, to, for it to be over and and to have to go home and and everybody else kind of part ways, and um, it was tough. It was tough at the end. Uh, we wanted it real bad, and we you know wanted it for the fan base, and and it was amazing there that last weekend um playing in front of that crowd and and uh we really appreciated it and and um but yeah we're all looking forward to next year casey you're pretty active on twitter which i think a lot of people appreciate kind of gives you the insight and i think it kind of humanizes a player outside of just he's a baseball player no you you realize he's he's a person outside of the game what have you liked about some of your interactions with fans or just anything on twitter um, just the ability to reach, uh, you know, and maybe somebody's having a bad day or something and post something silly or, you know, maybe Halloween costumes or, you know, something about the World Series where, you know, fans can kind of interact and relate and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it does kind of give us a chance to, to reach a bunch of people and to be able to converse back and forth and, you know, just, just have fun with it. You know, social media can can be used for for great things and you know just trying to do that the best I can and um my wife helps me out a little bit too she's she's a little bit better at it than me but um you know so it's nice to be able to bounce some stuff off of her and see what she thinks and and uh, go from there but yeah it's you know some of the feedback has been really cool you know especially with some of the um cf things the cystic fibrosis things that you know people I've had a chance to talk to and and stuff like that. I actually met a guy in New York when we were there playing the Yankees and actually had to 
a chance to you know talk face to face with him and and get a chance to hear his story a little bit and and so that's that's been pretty cool pretty powerful and because uh, I did see this on Twitter, I have to ask the hard-hitting question. How did the plan come together for uh, King Triton and the Little Mermaid crew? That would be my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter. <laughs> um, she she said, uh, Daddy, I think I want to be Little Mermaid for uh, for Halloween. And so right then and there, I'm like, oh, my gosh. That means I'm going to have to be King Triton. And uh, you'd be surprised how hard it is to find a King Triton um <laughs> Halloween outfit, even a month out from Halloween. So we just kind of, my wife went to um, Hobby Lobby and got some fabric and it was freezing cold. And so I had some blue um, Under Armour cold gear and I was like, you know what? I don't care. It's freezing here. I'm going to be warm and um, just had fun with it. You know, it was really fun to see her go out and, and enjoy that. And she, she loves to dress up anyway. Um, and so Halloween is kind of her jam and and um, it was it was a lot of fun. Well, it works with the Mariners theme. I, I thought maybe you had planned that. Yeah, but very right? very smart daughter then to yeah. have that idea. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, Casey, wait until you start to embarrass your kids when they. You should continue doing this because if you uh, if you dress up when they're teenagers, they might not think it, it's as cool. And I, I really enjoyed that part of parenthood and embarrassing my teenage kids. I don't know. She's she's pretty wiry. She's. Uh... She's in ballet right now, and and she's loving it. So she's all into the performing and the the dress up. And so hopefully she keeps that um, that side of of her, or you know, or not. You know, she might find something else she's passionate about. But as of right now, I don't think there's any embarrassing going on on my end of <laughs> oh, her. Man. And uh, but she's she's a lot of fun. Well, you you mentioned your work with uh, cystic fibrosis. Tell us a little bit about that. You said you had an experience to uh, with meeting a guy back in New York. Tell us uh, about that. Yeah, you know, um, just someone that saw a post that I had, I think on Instagram actually, um, and just reached out and just happened to be a worker there at Yankee Stadium and and said, hey, this is you know who I am. I'd love to meet. Um, and, you know, just kind of talk for a minute. And I didn't get to talk long because um, we were headed out. It just happened to be on the last day. But um, just got to meet him down by the buses and talk and hear his story and hear his journey and just be like, man, like, these people are warriors. You know, they have to deal with these things and um, take these medications or do these treatments. Or um, for him, um, he had to have some surgeries and you know, I don't want to go too much into his story because it's his story, but, um, you know, just to, to hear it and hear, you know, his journey and how he's doing well and uh, and stuff like that, you know, any kind of awareness we can we can help do um, on our end as far as my wife and I go, um, we're more than happy to do. Um, it's nice to have that kind of connection with the number that I wear and also, you know, with CF being um, such a big, big deal, but maybe not talked about as much as some of the other um, diseases and stuff. Um, it's it's really cool to be able to to kind of do what I can and what we can as as a family and um, being able to be somewhat a part of the CF golf tournament um, here in uh, Seattle with COVID um, was really cool. And then um, you know just being able to do some other things with trying to raise some money and and signing some baseballs and and giving those out and stuff like that. So. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cool to have something that you can, can be a part of. Cause I think that's, that's important. You know, as us as athletes, we have some platform 
to be able to use and whatever size that is and whatever impact you can make it's it's really kind of kind of neat never never in my wildest imagination would I have thought that you know I'd be in the position that I was in and and am in to do coming from where I came from um, small town Oklahoma and just uh, kind of worked our way here yeah, that's great stuff. And can can you explain a little bit the importance or the meaning of the number 65 to cystic fibrosis? Yeah, so um, it's connected with, like, younger kids. Um, it's known to them as the 65 roses disease because it's really hard for kids to say um, cystic fibrosis when they're younger, and that's, that's kind of how it all got started. Um, I learned a little bit about that from uh, an acquaintance of mine through my church back in Florida. And that's really kind of what drove me to uh, continue wearing the number and try to do what we can to raise awareness. Um, I'm still learning. Um, I'm trying to ask as many questions as I can. So if there's anybody out there that, you know, has some information or wants to share some knowledge or some stories, just um, hit me up on social media and I'll reach back and as much as I can. And, and, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's kind of become this special thing now. And, you know, I know Pax being here and he wore 65 first and, you know, just another shout out to him for understanding why I wear it and, and allow me to continue to do that. And, um, it's very appreciative because, um, it does mean, mean a lot, um, to be able to do that. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. Hey, Casey, yeah, that's that's really cool, and uh, you know we'll, we'll make sure our listeners, you know, can can find out where to where to go and and to make uh, any donations and uh, and help out your cause. But um, uh, getting back to Mariner baseball, and I'm I just always curious about bullpens, and I because a few years ago here in Seattle. They had just an, an unbelievable bullpen. And the next year, you know, with it was just like two missing guys or something. I think it changed just a little bit, but it was pretty much the same. And they weren't weren't as good. And it seems like bullpens are kind of up or down and, and you know, from year to year and kind of unpredictable. Uh, what, what do you think it was? What do you think's the the uh, sort of magic elixir for a really good bullpen? Is it is it the camaraderie you were talking about with the guys? or just a, a bunch of different styles what makes a what makes a good bullpen i think it's just a little bit of everything um you know yes the camaraderie has a lot to do with it you know when you enjoy going to work with with your buddies that definitely helps um the amount of time and effort and work that we put in and then the execution um you know going out and making your pitches and maybe even when you don't have your best stuff being able to you know kind of work your way through an inning and um and yeah i mean it definitely doesn't help when or doesn't hurt sorry when um you've got eight or ten different styles of arms coming out of that bullpen depending on where you're at in the lineup depending on you know what switch might happen if there's a, a pinch hit situation um <laughs> I don't know what's going through Service's head, but I can imagine he's, you know, kind of licking his chops a little bit when he looks down there and he can, you know, go to any one of the guys and have any kind of look he is looking for. Um, and so I think that definitely helps. And then it's just, you know, sometimes it's luck a little bit, you know. Um, guy hits the ball hard, but it's right at somebody. You get out of a jam, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot of, a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, I know, from a bullpen perspective on our end, we're going to do everything we can to kind of replicate what we were able to do last year as much as we can. But 
also understand that baseball is really hard. And, um, you know, there might be some setbacks or a little bit of failure, but pushing through it and um, just trying to compile a, a consistent and um, productive season is, I think, first and foremost. So, What was it about uh, that group, maybe in particular, or maybe this whole team that you, you had a great start to the season and then had the, the shoulder inflammation come back and really don't miss a beat? When you came back and joined those guys back in there, did it feel like you really hadn't missed a step at all, or how did you get back and get acclimated? Yeah, you know, that was really kind of the case. Um, and I don't know if it's because of COVID, because typically guys, you know, that are out for any kind of length of time are shipped off to spring training sites, and so you kind of lose touch with with those guys, you know, at least – you know, face to face. Um, and so being able to stay at the ballpark, do my rehab here, be here when they come into town, um, back to play home games and stuff and still have that kind of face to face, um, conversations and still be a part of that group. I think that definitely helps when you're kind of inserted. But again, I think it just speaks to the testament of the group of guys that we have here of like, okay, go take care of what you need to take care of. And then when you come back, just, you know, continue where you left off and you know i think that that is a testament to the guys in the clubhouse and because we all know how much work it takes um to not only stay healthy but to come back from you know injuries or inflammation or you know any kind of setback so um i think that definitely helped i know it helped me still being around the guys um seeing them go out and do what they do and you know kind of gives you that much more drive that when you come back you don't want to you don't want to be that weak, weak link or that, um, you know, that arm that is just kind of down there and not really fully ready. So um, I think that's why it took a little bit longer than I expected is, you know, one, just letting the body heal and two, making sure that I was ready to go do my job as soon as I stepped on onto that mountain again for those guys. So. Casey, it sounds like you're pretty busy with your family, but uh, other than that, mentioned, uh, I guess Mike said on Twitter, I'm, I'm not on Twitter, but uh, you're a hockey fan, and is that how you're kind of filling up your time now? Have you become a hockey fan, or what, what are you doing in the off season? So, growing up in Oklahoma, I nev- I've literally never been to a hockey game. There's not much um, hockey in Oklahoma, I'm thinking. <laughs> no, not much hockey. We had... The Blazers, I think, is what they were called. I think it was either like a minor league or something. And I can't remember going to a game. Maybe I have been. I don't. I don't know. I can't really remember. But when I saw that, you know, hockey was coming to Seattle, I was like, man, this is awesome. You know, it's something that we can do as a family in the off season and kind of dive into. And um, so I went ahead and bought jerseys for my wife and I, and bought shirts and and stuff for our little girls. And um, we'd love to try to make it out to a game or two. Um, to root those guys on but um, yeah we're excited Um, you know it's something different that we've never really dove into and so we um, we sat down and watched the the first game um, in Vegas and my wife and I were like man this is actually really interesting and fun and fast-paced and like you know we get we got to get to a game at some point so um, hopefully sometime this offseason we can get over there and cheer those guys on and and um get them get them some support and um it's just exciting you know it's it's exciting to be in a place where that is new and you know everybody's excited and and um you know i'm sure i'm sure it'll be an interesting season and um hopefully one that they'll never forget all right so i don't know how much of a public platform we have here but we'll put the call out now 
that you you need to get to a game. I mean, you're a pretty big supporter, it sounds like. So we got to get you guys out to a, a Kraken game, and hopefully they're listening. Yeah, or or if not, we'll make sure that uh, you guys can get over there. Mariners fans with yeah. hockey tickets. Get Call Casey in. Sadler and his family. Call in to 206-421-3779. <laughs> we got to get the Sadlers to a hockey game. How about that? Uh, that sounds good. Um, you know, it's it'll be it'll be interesting trying to find uh, time with two little ones, but uh, we'll we'll do everything we can to make it happen. I All right, know we I need babysitters to too. <laughs> Tickets and babysitters. <laughs> oh my goodness. Casey, uh, oh, I know man. I know not everyone you know calls Seattle their off season home. A lot of players come here, they play the season, and then they go back to wherever they might live in the off season. But what has been special for you now to be here and to really make roots here in Seattle for you and your family? Oh man, what hasn't been? Um, just we came up in 2019 after the season was over to visit. Um, my wife's sister, she was living here and still is, um, and just kind of fell in love with the area. You know, you have the mountains, you have the ocean a couple of hours away. You've got all the hiking and outdoor activities you could, you know, imagine. Um, the people are great. Um, just kind of a sense of community here, you know, and um, that really drew us here. And we love it so far. Um, it's somewhere that we want to definitely put down long-term roots and, and uh, hopefully be a Mariner for as long as we can and, and be able to play for for the city and the state that we um, live in. And it's definitely special. Um, not everybody has a chance to do that, um, be able to play somewhere that they want to spend the majority of their um, lives. And, and so that's pretty cool. It's pretty special. Um, you know, we enjoy going outside and hiking and doing all that. We've been able to do some of that this off season, And, and even the rainy days and gloomy days, it's nice to be able to, curl up by the fire and, you know, maybe put a movie on and pop some popcorn and just have some family time and, and all that kind of stuff. So we really just try to make the most of whatever the day gives us and, and go from there. Well, that's awesome, Casey, and we hope you're here for a long time. It was great talking to you, man. Uh, good luck uh, getting the hockey tickets. I'm sure you'll get that done. And and good luck uh, in your off season. Thanks for, uh, thanks for calling in, man. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. So Casey Sadler with his best in baseball 067 ERA for all relievers with 40 or more innings last season. One of the best ground ball percentages in the league. Just a huge part of that Mariners bullpen. And let's not forget, he was picked up off of waivers last September from the Cubs. Yeah, the Mariners got him for nothing. He's under club control through 24. Great move right there with Casey Sadler. Now, the man who was responsible for that deal, he has a weekly show on 710 ESPN Seattle, if you haven't heard. Every Thursday morning, Jerry DePoto can be heard on the Mike Salk Show at 830. Now, remember a few clips ago earlier in this podcast when Jake and Stacy pointed out the concern of some that the Mariners would not dramatically increase what they spend this year? And Howdy in our podcast said he wouldn't be too excited about accumulating lesser knowns regardless of how they fit in and regardless of whatever their war added up to on the field. He was invested in the names that are out there, the big names this winter. Now, from what Jerry told Mike Salk, it wouldn't appear that that is their intent. It's really good. Uh, among you know, among free agent classes, there are always great players available in free agency. But you know, there's some depth to this particular class, uh, especially on the position player side. And you know, and it's exciting to to go into a market that is this robust with some flexibility and and the ability to to land a player at multiple positions on the field. So, 
Uh, it, it's not short on talent, especially middle of the field talent. And, you know, they're, as a general rule, you got a lot of guys that are in their primes that are all-star type players that are hitting the market at the same time. And, and uh, you know, that's, it's unique because of the depth. But, you know, it's, uh, it's exciting for us because this is the first time that we've, you know, really set our sights on, on finding, you know, those centerpiece type players that can really drive a championship team. And, and hopefully we're able to, to, to bring one to Seattle, if not more. <laughs> yeah, he's not looking for the diamonds in the rough here or the club control fits with what we're doing with our younger players thing here. We've seen him do that before in free agency since the rebuild. Well, this is different. He's certainly putting it out there that they are shopping and they are shopping in the high price style. And I guess there is some risk with that. I mean, it's not going to look good if nothing gets done. And there are, of course, no guarantees. But he sure as heck sounds like somebody who wants to spend. And I've been curious about that since he got here because we haven't really seen it. We've seen the trades. We've seen the waiver pickups, smaller signings, but not that big impact, big dollar free agent signing from him. It's going to be fascinating to watch and hopefully exciting and hopefully with a big prize at the end. Now, that interview, which also included mm, just a, he did touch a little bit on the Seeger and Kikuchi situations, as well as what he saw as the keys to the Atlanta Braves' success in the World Series. All of that can be found in an interview, which is on the Mike Salk show page on the podcast page on 710sports.com. Now, the DePoto interview on Thursday kicked off what was a Mariners jam-packed day for the station. About an hour later, Aaron Goldsmith joined Salk, and the two started out the segment comparing notes on Brock Heward as a broadcast partner. Aaron, yep. Yep, Aaron has worked with Brock as well on a few college football games. Now, hey, you know what? You can have them. Okay. <laughs> like, it was a good run. We had a, we had a great, I think, I think six weeks, I think six weeks of Val Kilmer wannabe is probably probably enough. I call uncle. Um, oh we've had an amicable breakup, uh, but I just, it was just, it's just so much talking, you know, just talk, 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 production meetings, talk, talk, talk. And I just, I said, you know what, Brock, I'm going to call the execs at Fox. I'm going to say, yeah. I think we've got a good run, um, but I think you're more of a salt man, yes. than a goldie man, and uh, we're going to be okay. Yeah. So a couple of things on that. First of all, you're obviously not used to that much talking, hanging with Blowers all the time. You've got to really kind of draw Mike <laughs> out. So Brock's amount of talking would have been a lot. Secondly, if you do get paired with Brock again, little advice, and, and no one would know this better than me, just talk over him. Just keep going. That's what I've done for years, and it makes people incredibly angry. So, Thankfully, the talk soon turned to baseball. Aaron broke down what he thought the Mariners' needs were, and it was a little bit different than what we have heard from most. He started with starting pitching, needing two starters, then moved to infield and had questions about the outfield, pointing out what they have done in the past to fill outfield spots wasn't going to fly moving forward. He also gave some names and speculated the approach the Mariners could take when it comes to those big contracts. Good stuff from Goldie. You will need to add a bat to that infield at some point. When the trade was made for Abraham Toro, the Mariners were last offensively at second base in like every category, whether it be basic things like average and on base, uh, more advanced stuff. Uh, the Mariners, it was, it was really, it was a, a black hole in the lineup, unfortunately. And we saw Toro get hotter than anybody else for about a month or a month and a half and be one of the best hitters in the league. I don't think he's that guy. I don't think the Mariners think he's that guy, but he's certainly uh, better than the worst hitting second baseman in all of baseball. So where does Toro play? Where can he fit in? He can play multiple spots. And then I think the outfield is, 
is a question mark, right? I mean, we learned that Kyle Lewis can win a Rookie of the Year award, but he unfortunately can also be injury-prone and essentially have a lost season. I don't think the Mariners are in a position anymore, Mike. They are not in a position where you can afford an injury where you replace that player with a replacement-level player, Mm -hmm. right, or a below-replacement-level player. I mean, the stakes are beginning to get too high for the Mariners, especially with what we are projecting them to do over the winter and what that means for them from a competitive standpoint and trying to track down a division and take that away from the Houston Astros. Like, if you lose a guy, you need to replace him with a guy. Right. Not just a replacement. Yeah, you got to do player. something so like that, what the Braves that, did, the right? They lost Acuna. They didn't replace him with a chump. They replaced him with Jock Peterson. I mean, like, you know, if right. you don't have it in your system, I totally agree with you on that. So, 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 all right, Aaron, let's go. Who do you want? Who, who's on your shopping list? <laughs> I got my guys. Who's on your shopping list? Who do you want? The who's your who's your priority? Well, I want them all, Mike. I, I do too. I want uh, them I mean, all too. But you can't have it all. So, who do you want? You can't have it all, obviously. Uh, I mean, I think the one guy that is so intriguing that from everything that we've seen from pretty up close to what we've heard from afar and coming off a career year is Marcus Simeon. Mm-hmm. Like, he is one of the most intriguing free agents to me. Uh, he signs the one-year deal. He has a career year. He signs Boris to represent him, which is always kind of like you cringe a little bit with that. Uh, but we, he's a West Coast guy. Uh, he's from the Bay Area. Seattle, obviously, not far away. It seems like he is – Fine playing second base. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but he certainly did that last year. Is he willing to do that for multiple years to come, right? I don't know. Uh, but if he is, I mean, that seems like as yeah. good of a dude and as good of a player as you can find on this free agent market. I've been that right there with you. That That is the player that I would certainly target right away if I were Jerry DePoto. A couple of names showed up, though, I think is interesting third base candidates on the on the trade market. Uh, Jose Ramirez obviously is one. He'd be beyond expensive in terms of assets. What would you think about a run at someone like Matt Chapman, though, who is potentially available with what's going to go on in Oakland this offseason? Absolutely. I mean, he's obviously had a, in some ways, had a difficult offensive season. Like his splits were kind of extreme. Uh, he hit lefties well, but we saw him get exposed against righties. I guess maybe he doesn't have to face Paul Seawald. Exactly. Uh, his numbers would, uh, would, would increase uh, significantly. But he's, I mean, for my money, he's, and this is, it's tough to say this with Nolan Arenado still active and still elite. Like Chapman is the best defensive third baseman in the game. I don't, you don't talk about a baseball player being twitchy. But Chapman is twitchy to me. Like he has this burst and this explosion and this twitch factor that you just don't see in our game. Uh, and he is still a productive offensive player. I wondered if the hip was in, was hampering him last year. I don't know, uh, but it was a, a difficult season in some ways offensively. But I mean, with Melvin leaving, it's, it seems like the A's are moving in a different direction. We'll see what they would decide to end up doing. But yes, I mean that is it's a tremendous player, a platinum glove caliber defender at third base and if you have him or someone in that stratosphere defensively even a notch below i mean you have arguably the best left side of an infield in the league if not in the game yeah so i mean yeah that is it's, that's, that's elite it's pretty easy to start imagining an infield of ty france marcus Semyon, jp crawford and matt chapman and going yeah i can i can live with that moving forward along with jared kelnick's development and julio rodriguez eventually and mitch hanniger i mean 
you can really start to write a story very quickly in your head without actually having to be the one to trade for that person or sign them that really makes the Mariners look great really quickly. Yeah, you know, the game that, that I like to play, especially when you're uh, facing a team like the Astros or a team that is, uh, you know will be going to the playoffs, is you just go position by position, right? Yeah. Like, would you take this the Mariners guy or the, let's say, the Astros guy? And you go position by position. And you start adding some of those names, right? And maybe in some cases it's a wash. Maybe in some cases it's an edge to Houston. In some cases it's a favor for the Mariners. But the point is, it's now all of a sudden balanced, right? I mean, you go through those nine guys and it's more five versus four, four versus five, as opposed to, yeah, you know, I think I'd take the Mariners two or three guys and I'd give the Astros uh, six or seven. And you're right. I mean, I think the Mariners are going to build a highly, highly competitive team over the course of one winter this year, because let's not forget they won 90 games. I mean, this is as good of a, uh, of a foundation to add on to as you can get for a team that, has financial resources, and has trade capital as well. What are they, like $45 million or something committed for next year as of now? I mean, like they, the world is their oyster if they want to go spend money. They've got it. They've saved it over the last couple of years with the promise that it would be reinvested back into the team. And and there's $45 million is nothing. I mean, like in theory, they could go spend $120 million on payroll this offseason season. Without blinking an eye. Now, I'm not saying they're going to do that or that that's the right number or anything like that. But think about what you could get for that amount of money to completely reshape a franchise that, as you said, already looks pretty good. Yeah, and you just you just got a $13 million bonus, right, with Kikuchi opting out. So that's just you added a little bit more onto the stack of cash that you can spend. I think the the Mariners will not spend foolishly. I think what is most intriguing to me with some of these high, high price free agents, take like a Chris Bryant, for example. I mean, in the days of giving a guy uh, on the back nine of his career, the Albert Pujols contract or the Robbie Cano contract, right? The 10 years for 300 million, like it's not going to happen. I'm guessing that the Mariners are much more interested in something along the lines of we'll give you a shorter deal with a very high average annual value, right? And so we want to cash in on the last, let's call it, four to five or six years of just pure meat on the bone that's on your career. We know you'll still play after that, but we want the prime beef that's left. And will there be a player that is willing, of that caliber, some of the guys we've discussed, that's willing to take a shorter deal for a high average annual value uh, to come to Seattle? Because I think... The Mariners, Jerry, Justin Hollander, those guys are, are too smart to give um, a massive long-term deal that almost no player sees the end of. Right. That we've seen everybody just falter off of in recent And nor should they, because eventually you're going to have to deal with uh, Jared Kelnick wanting to get paid and Julio Rodriguez and some of these young pitchers. I mean, you, you got to plan for the future. The hot stove there was just starting to heat up on Thursday. Jake and Stacy, big show, as they presented their Mariners free agency primer. Gary Hill up first, a little bit of a different direction again. As it turns out, he actually looks at the situation with the Mariners, particularly in the outfield, much like I do. First off, I guess it should be clear, I look at the outfield as a four-position spot because I throw the DH into that. I think it's going to be a four four starters basically every day will be outfielders. And so I guess that's how I look at it. And I think it is a spot to uh, – it's important to add another productive bat to that spot. 
And in terms of Kyle Lewis, I think it is hard to go into this season knowing exactly what you're going to get. And I think you leave the DH open for the outfield spot because it works so well with Mitch Hanniger. And if you can get Lewis to come back healthy, then you can get a split of Hanniger and Lewis at the DH spot. And that's why I think it opens up one of the corners, maybe center field. They do have some flexibility there. And I guess that's my question on uh, where that bat goes. Is it a center field bat? Is it a corner bat? There's not many options in terms of free agency for center fielders. Uh, Starling Marte is probably the biggest name there. But there are some very intriguing options to me at a corner spot. So I think it's, it both fits the Mariners very well, and there's a lot of really good options that would help this lineup, I think, a lot. So that's kind of why I think outfield bat is is important. And it still leaves spot for Julio if you look at it in a four-position three outfielders DH. There's some room there. Is there any name you've heard that you think is a pretty realistic target? For instance, uh, I've a lot of Mariners fans would love to get Corey Seager here, but I don't know how realistic that is. Mm. And I kind of question whether or not Carlos Correa is realistic, given how much the Mariners seem to love JP at shortstop. So is there another name you've heard that, that is a bit of a bigger name where you think, you know what, I could actually see this being a fit for Seattle? Yeah, you make a great point. Uh, when we talk about it's fun to have a wish list, right? But it's got to go both ways and I think in terms of Mariners getting an infielder we know that J.P. Crawford's a shortstop so it's got to be a guy that's going to be willing to play in another spot whether it's second base or third base and what's good about the Mariners this offseason they have some flexibility like they don't have to get a second baseman it can be a third baseman and most of guys around so there's some flexibility there I think Marcus Simeon is a name that I am very excited about that I think is certainly a realistic a target for the Mariners, I think he fits really well. I mean, we, he is a gold glover at shortstop or second base. He was elite defender at second base. Uh, his offensive numbers speak for themselves. He's just a really good player. He's a really good, uh, great clubhouse guy. He's a guy that we have watched develop through the years. You know, he's, he started his career in Oakland and was a, a terrible defender when he started his career. And over the years, and we saw him before games work with Ron Washington time and time again and just get better and better and better and better through the years. He can really hit. He's a really good defender. So he's at the top of my, my wish list, and I, th- I just think he fits the team perfectly. And I think he's a realistic option. And there, that, that's the thing about this offseason. I mean, there are a bunch of names I could list that would all help. Which is the good news. You're not locked into a guy or two to make or break the offseason. I think there are a lot of options to look at. And away from the big names? Yeah, that's a great question because a lot of the focus is, of course, at the top of the list. You know, we hear a lot of the same names over and over and over, which for good reason. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good players out there. But it, it is a really deep pool, and especially – your question, I think that's where the outfielders come in. A guy like Mark Canna is someone who I am very interested in. He's a really good player. He's been great for the A's. Uh, another name, uh, a guy that would be turning, uh, returning home, Michael Conforto is a guy that I would be really excited about as well. Mm-hmm. Who's a really good player. Had kind of a down year last year, but he can really play. And he's from here, went to Oregon State, and he's a guy that I watched in college and watched uh, develop through the years. I think he would be an excellent fit. Uh, I think there's, uh, especially in the outfield, there's a lot of those, I guess, second-tier targets that would uh, really, really help the Mariners, especially uh, make the lineup deeper, which I think is 
a huge key this offseason, help defensively as well, depending on who it is and where they fit. Later in the show, Jake and Stacy turn their attention to the prospects with Baseball America Editor-in-Chief J.J. Cooper, who gives us a look at how the Mariners' prospects fared and what that means for the Mariners going forward and how they could stack up against the rest of the division next season. I think that they've made some massive strides, like they're bubbling just below uh, the big league surface. Obviously, Jared Kelenic came up last year, and it was rockier than I expected, to be honest, his transition. But we did see some positives in the season. But, man, I'm excited about Julio Rodriguez. And for Baseball America, we love prospects. Julio Rodriguez is a prospect who is very easy to love. Uh, I remember doing a piece on him at the end of the year this year that just kind of pointed out, if you look at the history of players who batted roughly 330 in the minor leagues, not the major leagues, but in the minor leagues in the last decade, it's really hard to find anyone on that list who doesn't have a good uh, big league career. And, you know, often great. Julio Rodriguez has done that. Julio Rodriguez has hit for average everywhere he's ever gone in the minors. He's been younger in the level everywhere he goes. So, but obviously everyone at this point, if you're a Mariners fan and you're not thinking about Julio Rodriguez, you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> but the other part that, that, that happened this year is, okay, there were a couple of setbacks. Like Emerson Hancock, the first round pick in 2020, wasn't, uh, you know, had some injury problems this year. But George Kirby, Matt Brash, who was kind of weird how he was added to the 40-man, added to the big league roster, but didn't actually play uh, in the final week of the season. But Matt Brash has current dominant big league type stuff. Now, he hasn't done it in the majors yet, but I expect that he will to some extent in, in 2022. It's He's not far away. George Kirby's not far away. They have pitching to go with that outfield, especially if Kyle Lewis comes back healthy next year, to go with a Kellenic, to go with a Julio Rodriguez. I feel like that this team, they're still going to need to make some further additions to this team. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably time to start making some of those free agent acquisitions, add a couple of, of talented veterans to a very impressive young core. But that said, that looks very promising, and you also can't ignore the fact they're in a division where it seems like that Oakland is basically tearing this down to the studs at this point and probably going into a complete rebuild, so you don't really worry about them. The Rangers are probably further away than Seattle is coming into this, so Seattle's probably closer to uh, playoff contention, I would say, than them. And Houston, I think Houston's going to stay comp- very competitive, but obviously they may be losing some stars, including Carlos Correa, in free agency, that's going to leave a mark. That's going to bring them a little bit back closer to the rest of the division. Later, Ryan Divish checked in with his thoughts of what next for the Mariners, with Jay Keeps prompting him on the rotation. I think profile-wise, to round out the rotation, would make a lot of sense to bring back a Tyler Anderson or someone that profiles like him. But what do you do at the top of that rotation, and how aggressive do you see the Mariners in trying to fill that spot? Yeah, I mean, I, I know Tyler Anderson was somebody they talked about, and, he, and he's fine. I mean, he's kind of a fill spot. I mean, if you look at it, they have really only three established starters in in Flexen, 
Marco Gonzalez and, and, and Logan Gilbert. You have them locked in. Then you have the, the Justin Dunn's and Justice Sheffield's who got to compete for a spot. So, yeah, Anderson does fit. But, like, if you're going to go out and get two guys, you know, you need that one guy that maybe has just kind of got that front-line talent. Look, I don't believe there's that many aces in baseball, but there's some guys with, like, number one starter material. Maybe there's guys out there that fit that bill. Um, you know, I know – Jeff Passon has mentioned Max Scherzer and some of those guys. I don't know that Max wants to go there, but if, if you can get, maybe you look at Noah Syndergaard or somebody like you, you just dump a bunch of money on him. Um, and one thing I would do if I was them, and I don't know if they've kind of reached that discussion point. I know they'd kind of addressed it a little bit. Like dude, they should just bring back James Paxton on a minor league deal or a one year, $1 million deal with lots of incentives because when healthy, that guy can move you up to the front too. I just don't think that you can look at, George Kirby and Emerson Hancock and say like, look, these two prospect guys are going to be ready to help us all season long or even for half the season. I mean, they aren't as advanced as Logan Gilbert was. So, you know, and by, you know, by all possibilities, they, they could trade one of those guys if they need to, to get help for their lineup. If if they're not um, able to sign a free agent bat, then they have to look at trading one of those guys to get a, a, a bat for their lineup. Divish brings up a great point, and one that really hasn't been addressed much. Will they trade a prospect? Could we see one of George Kirby or Emerson Hancock traded? And I would imagine it would be Hancock. Now, as Divish pointed out, that more likely would be if they strike out on the free agent market. While they've got great prospect capital and could deal a top prospect, if you can buy that player, all the better. And isn't that what they've been building toward? Having the flexibility and payroll to be able to keep those prospects it is going to be a huge win for this organization if they are able to come out of this offseason filling the needs they have without having to give up one of the top prospects. The Big Baseball Thursday continued on the Wyman and Bob with their weekly conversation with John Paul Morosi. Now, John Paul is mainly talking hockey with them this time of the year, but there's always going to be a little bit of baseball in that conversation. And he turned his attention to the upcoming GM meetings and what he expects to see then. Give us uh, your, your quick impressions of, uh, of the World Series and the Atlanta Braves winning it all. Well, a couple things. Number one, in, in terms of why we maintain such high optimism for the Mariners, let's remember the Mariners won more games than the Braves during the regular season. That's an yeah. important data point to keep in mind. And uh, I think it really speaks to how close the Mariners are to potentially being a, a World Series caliber club. But Atlanta was a team that was charmed from the second half of the season on. All the moves they made at the deadline, it, revamping their entire outfield. Jorge Soler as the MVP. Let's remember, this is why baseball is so fascinating. He had an, a batting average under 200 at the time he was traded in late July. Now he becomes the World Series MVP for the first world title for the Braves since 1995. So a, a great story. Freddie Freeman, what a classy person he's always been. And, and for me to be able to watch Freddie hug his dad, of course, Freddie lost his mom to cancer about 20 years ago. And so to see that embrace and both of them uh, crying, just really emotional tears in that moment was something I'm never going to forget. Yeah, that was that was really cool. And Solaire, yeah, it's interesting. And like, I think six of his last like nine or ten or eleven games, uh, he hit home runs, and right. you know, so it was it was kind of interesting because uh, we'll, we'll get to Mariner stuff later. Uh, we sure. we got to get to the hockey stuff right yes. now. First of all, you're coming to town next week, <laughs> yeah. John Paul. So I'm really excited about this. This is um, uh, sort of my dream road trip. Uh, as as we heard from Jerry Depoto in his conversation with Mike earlier, next week is the 
GM meetings for baseball. So it's a fun week for me because I get a chance to go th- go there to Carlsbad, California, and uh, immerse yourself in the the business of baseball for several days. And then as soon as the proceedings start to wrap up on Thursday, I'm going to uh, get to the airport in San Diego as quickly as I can. So let's hope that the five freeway is uh, is charitable to me uh, on that particular day because yes. the plan is drive to San Diego, fly up to Seattle. First stop is going to be the studio to be with you guys on Thursday night. So awesome. a week from right now, hopefully, I'm sitting with you guys in studio. And then I will head over to Climate Pledge Arena to be there for the first time since I covered the Sonics in the Western Conference semifinals in 2005. Uh, so wow. uh, that, that's going to be my my first meeting at, uh, at now Climate Pledge. So I'm really excited about it. It's been something I've wanted to do for a long time, to be to get up there, see you guys, see the building. So excited about that. The Kraken have been wonderful to me, at, uh, helping uh, help me get settled there with, with some credentials for the weekend. So I, I want to be able to get there and see the team in person to be able to uh, keep my observations fresh about them as we talk on the air and, and just excited to watch this team play in person. Now, really quick, sorry, Graz, but uh, I got to know because uh, we talked off the air just a little bit just now. You said you want to be there for warm-ups and that that's yes. like one of your favorite things. What's so great about hockey warm-ups? I, I love hockey warm-ups. I love for a couple of reasons. There, there's the emotional reason, reason and then the strategic reason. The emotional reason is there is something special about the buzz in a building before a big game. And and when you're you're at a playoff game at a game in a, in a great building like I know CPA certainly is, uh, I think back to when I watched the Wings play at Joe Lewis and, and when I've gone to games in Canada. There's just a special buzz in the building, and so when you've got and this is this is true true part of the story when you have really good music. Uh, it really helps. And so when you're in a building with great music and, and the music fits the, the atmosphere, which I know it certainly does at Climate Pledge, uh, that's special from an emotional standpoint. And then, and then the strategic part is you get a chance to see who is playing with who on line rushes. So you'll often see uh, after the initial skate around and, and, and the guys get their, their legs going, then you start to see – when when the the forwards group up into groups of three, and then usually the center will will dump the puck in the corner, and they'll they'll chase the puck down, and they'll be going up against two of their own defensemen in their half of the ice, and that's how you can tell who is playing with who, who who the center is and who the wingers are, and how they're playing together. So often you'll see during warmups, if you're following closely on the on the Twitter feeds of the beat writers and the beat reporters, it'll say, okay, McCann is centering. Schwartz and Eberle tonight, or or Yanni Gord is out there with with Geeky, whatever the the pairings might be, and the line line combinations. That's when you get to see who the lineup is. So I love it that in hockey, the first people that usually tell what the lineup is are the people who are in the building watching the warm up. It's as if the, the batting order in a, in batting practice was the actual batting order. You have to watch to see who gets in the cage at what time. You get to tell who is skating with who based on how you watch the warm-up. So the warm-up, the more you watch it, it gives you the clues as to who's going to play with whom during the course of the game. John, what, what are the biggest surprises in, after the first month of, a, of, of the hockey season in your mind? So I think from a Kraken standpoint, a couple of things. I mean, number one, uh, their their division, and of course, huge news today uh, within the division, and Jack Eichel going to Vegas, and, and ironic that the Sabers, of course, are going to play the Kraken tonight. So you've got huge news right in front of you right now with, with the Pacific Division. I think Edmonton, as we saw them play the Kraken this week, they're off to a really strong start, and and I think they're a better club than I expected them to be, uh, and I think Seattle. Outside of of Grubauer's initial struggles, 
uh, early on in the, the first. If you look at, if you break up his eight starts in the first four and the last four, the last four have been more consistent. Of course, he's going to start again tonight. Look at his last three games. I think it was one goal allowed, one, and then two. Uh, obviously, the game against New York could have gone either way. The empty netter at the end. I, I think in general, as his play has stabilized, the Kraken's play has stabilized. There's one really unique hockey metric uh, from an advanced analytics standpoint that's called PDO, and it basically tells you uh, it's sort of analogous in some ways to run differential in baseball, but it basically gives you a a little bit of a guide as to the difference in, in save percentage and shooting percentage offensively for a team that tells you basically how lucky they've been. And that number right now for the Kraken indicates that they've been a little unlucky. And the unluck for me, the lack of luck, I think comes from the early games. And again, it's a small sample size in general, but it comes from Grubauer being inconsistent early. And as his performance has stabilized, the play of the team is stabilized. And, and the, what I would say from the Kraken standpoint, that's, that's sort of on the positive side, that as Gord has gotten back in the lineup and Grubauer has stabilized a bit, they've played better. The one concern I have uh, for the Kraken right now is that I could tell the game against Edmonton also, to some extent, against New York, this is a team that when they run up against a, an opponent that skates really well, that had that plays with a lot of pace the way that Edmonton does, and again, everybody's going to struggle to keep up with McDavid and Dreisaitl, but sure. the defensive core for Seattle has shown, in my opinion, some vulnerability against really good skating teams, and, and that's going to have to be the part of the club that gets addressed. We, we see one a lineup adjustment now with Fleury coming back in and Susie sitting for tonight's game. I think we're going to see Dave Haxtell and his group trying to find the best combinations there and helping that defensive core be a little more positionally aware in their own zone. That, to me, is one bit of the club that is a little more vulnerable than I thought. We, we talked in the summer about all the veteran defensemen they got. I have not seen quite the chemistry I expected developing yet. It may still develop, but I think that's the one part of the club that's been a little slower to develop than I expected when the season began. Is that is that the worst thing? Do you think that that you see with this team? Yeah, and again, it's not a it's not a bad it's not like a bad season breaking thing. It yeah. just it it seems to me that so look looking at the forward group like Tanev has scored well above beyond what we thought he was going to do. I think Schwartz has been a little bit unlucky. He broke through in his most recent game. I think he's played really well. Uh, that that goal he scored when he split the two defensemen and and backhanded around Darnell Nurse against Edmonton. My gosh. Uh, that is a brilliant goal. And, and Darnell Nurse is one of the best 10 defensemen in the sport. So that was a great play by someone who I think is going to score a lot of goals for the Kraken this year. Getting Gord back ahead of time was important. I think we look at it, too, and, and Blackwell hasn't hasn't played yet. I think that's that's a, a key guy they thought they were going to have that hasn't been available yet. So for a lot of reasons, I think the forward group, I, I've seen some growth with Geeky. I think he's a really good player. I think Bastion has shown some signs too. I, I like what I'm seeing from the forward group. I think defensemen, when we talk about in transition, there have been a couple ill-timed breakdowns and a couple times when, when I've said, boy, this team's going to struggle a bit to, to keep up with, with the really elite skating teams, which a lot of teams are, uh, unfortunately, but but the the, the part of it uh, in, in this team, in this division in particular, is they're going to have to deal with Vegas, who's been a little bit slower than expected because of the injuries, and now, of course, they get Eichel now, and then Edmonton's better than expected. So now you start to say, okay, who are the Kraken definitely going to be better than? And that's where the questions start to become a little harder as you get deeper into the season. And they, they've had some bad luck shooting. I mean, just yes. simple bad luck. Good shots, good setups, but just haven't been able to put the puck in. 
Right, and that, that I think speaks to the, the PDO metric that I mentioned earlier, where both the shooting percentage has been um, has yielded, to your point, a, a, a smaller number of goals than what you would expect based on the quality of the chances. And, and I think part of it, we have to go with the overarching uh, equation here, is that these are players who, by definition, had zero chemistry with each other before right. September. The team had never existed. So I, I think it's taking a little bit more time for that chemistry and that cohesion to develop than what you saw maybe with Vegas. Uh, and that's that's no one's fault. It's just taking a little bit of time. And I think as as you see the the, the chemistry and, and the looks and the passes, when you think about just the way that, that passers and, and shooters sort of set each other up, that process takes time. And it, it takes time to see who plays well with whom. Uh, I think getting Yanni Gord back was really important. I think it sets up the rest of the lines very, very well. I think Tanev is a key guy for them in terms of a tone-setting player. Yarncroke, who missed some time, he's a guy that can play center or wing. I think Wenberg is a guy that can play center or wing. Uh, I think Don Scoy and his work rate, I think he's going to have to be a really key guy to really get Schwartz unlocked and scoring goals again. I think the way that that, that forward group plays together is going to be really important. So I, I'm seeing good building blocks. I think that the, it's that last bit of, of creativity and, and, and those beautifully set-up goals. I, I think that's going to come more now, I think, in the month of November than it did in the month of October. Who, who's a player, Jean-Paul, that, uh, that just grabs your attention, that your eyes go to when you watch the Kraken play? I think it's Tanev. I think Tanev has been he, – he has been the tone setter. Uh, you love it when you get a guy who can both deliver a big hit, bring the physicality, and then also score. And, and he's got that that attitude about him, the style of play that I think is really going to resonate with fans. He's someone, because of uh, of the loudness with which he plays, if you're going to a Kraken game and it's your first NHL game or one of your first NHL games, there's a pretty good chance – that Brandon Tanev is going to do something that gets your attention. Mm-hmm. And I like that about him. He 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 is going to resonate already has resonated well with with this fan base. I I think Giordano was someone who he is someone that you appreciate the more you watch the subtleties of his game, the leadership that he brings. You could tell in, in the game at Edmonton that's a team that he played against a bunch in Calgary that knows him well. You saw when he took that early penalty, the crowd there booed him because they always w- will consider him to be the captain of the Flames, even if he's wearing the C for the Kraken. He's still Mark Giordano, captain of the Calgary Flames to them. And so when he took that penalty early, uh, and obviously a power play goal was conceded at that point, you could tell some frustration from Mark, and that's his only natural. I think he's getting used to his new environment but he is such a classy person and a great ambassador for the game who i think you're going to get to know more and more as time goes on i think mccann i know i know obviously he's missed some time i like his game i think he is someone that that hasn't gotten the full chance to really flourish in his previous stops seattle to me is a perfect spot for McCann to take that next step in his game. So I think those are three guys that stand out to me a lot. Oleksiak, of course, big physical player, always stands out. Dunn, really good puck-moving defenseman, who I think has has had some moments of, of really encouraging play so far, but probably looking for that, that bit, of, bit of consistency now going forward. Uh, perhaps a new partner for him here going forward with, with Fleury tonight. So I think those are some key names. But, but to me, Tanev has been, if you're going to look at the avatar for the Seattle Kraken so far this season, it's Brandon Tanev. <laughs> Sidney Crosby tested positive for COVID-19, and, and I'm just wondering in general, what, what do you think about how the NHL is, is handling COVID versus some of the other leagues? You know, it's so hard to tell. And obviously, uh, 
to our knowledge right now, uh, the only player publicly known to be unvaccinated right now is Tyler Bertuzzi uh, with the Detroit Red Wings. And, of course, Bertuzzi, because of, of the border crossing dynamics, is actually not able to play in any game in Canada. So that's that's a fairly significant bit of news for a team that's in the same division as Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal. So that's, that's a pretty uh, big bit of news for Detroit. And they've really struggled, candidly, to play. Hey, John Paul, you mentioned the GM meetings that you're going to yes. uh, Carlsbad, right? Yes, Carlsbad, yeah. California. So what what do you get from that? What uh, What's most interesting about going to the GM meetings? That's a great question. Uh, it's kind of the tone setter of, of the off season, And um, I, I say that because you're around a lot of the agents, a lot of the, the executives are there. You heard Jerry DePoto talk about that. You get a chance to really get the flavor of, of, of who's out there. Scott Boris always does a, a big address, if you will, uh, to the media and talks about his clients, and he's got a lot of them this year, uh, including now newly Marcus Simeon. So he'll he'll address the media, and, and sometimes that's where all those uh, funny Boris-isms come out about uh, who's shopping in which aisle. He had those great lines about uh, why it was taking so long for his player to sign, and his famous quote was, it doesn't matter what time dinner is when you're the steak. I'm not quite sure what that exactly <laughs> meant, but that's what he said. Uh, so uh, we will get – trust me, at some point in time next week, you'll get some Scott Boris quotes. You'll say, hey, John told us this was coming. And so uh, I, I think last year was interesting. Of course, there were no GM meetings. There were no winter meetings last year due to COVID. So we, we missed that sort of unofficial, official kickoff of the offseason. Uh, will we see players signing next week? Perhaps. Uh, it's always a little bit early in the process. We also know that the CBA expires on December 1. So do you see some players who want to sign early before the CBA expires? Perhaps. We're all sort of operating in a um, a bit of an uncertain mode because of that, because of uh, just what a unique offseason this is in general. This is a normal seeming off season because we're all able to gather again. We played 162. We played a World Series in front of a full crowd. I, I try to remind myself of just how lucky we are. Uh, again, how far we've come in the last year. Last year at this time, we had just come out of the bubble. There was the whole Justin Turner positive case, uh, which was its own sideshow and, and, and a distraction uh, in many ways. So we're in a much better place now with respect to COVID, with respect to the business of baseball in general. So there's a lot to look forward to. It, it will feel... I think largely normal uh, executives they're often coy about what their intentions are uh who, who they're going to trade for who they're going to trade who they're going to sign but you can often read the tea leaves and say okay this this team wants to really make a big investment we'll probably hear from jerry Depoto what his priorities are um and, and maybe by putting two and two together does he indicate that maybe a marcus Simeon's possible obviously he's committed to a jp crawford shortstop those types of of insights uh, at least are are there where you start to put the puzzle piece together it's fun for people like me to like to just to see everybody again and, and talk shop and talk about the game but i think you'll hopefully get to the initial perspective as to what the mariners may do during the offseason hey john paul really quick question i'm sorry sure. Charles. i gotta ask you this because i had i had uh, dinner with him uh probably 10 12 years ago do you know uh, mike trout's agent uh craig landis and and does craig i played college football with craig landis at Stanford. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. Craig Landis. Yep. Yeah, and he was my roommate on the road. And I, How about that? Yeah, what a small world. Is that his only client still? That he has, That's a great question. Client? Craig Landis's uh, clientele, uh, to your point, uh, 
he he does not have as many clients as he used to. I can confirm that for you definitively. Okay. Uh, there there he still works with a couple other partners, at least to my last check. Ryan Ware, who's in Houston, and and Mike Seal, who's in California. But but you're right. Craig Landis basically at one time I would talk to him on multiple free agents every winter, and then the list began to dwindle as this guy from New Jersey named Trout got higher and higher in profile. Yeah. And if you and if I would say this. If you take a look at what Mike Trout has earned and signed for in his in his career and take whatever the agent's percentage of that might be, yes. Craig Lannis is probably doing okay. He's doing fine, and why would you want any more? Uh, that's right. Clients, right, and that's and that's yeah. it. And I'll say this, and this is my own little uh, editorialization on 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 the sports agent world. I, I have found this to be true: agents who have a relatively small number of clients who they know very well tend to be very happy agents, yes. and those agents who have clients who are named Mike Trout are really happy agents. <laughs> That's right. We're going to close this podcast out with uh, what we began it with, a little bit more Mike Salk, another great baseball conversation on Friday, and controversy, two controversies actually. Which side do you fall on? There's Jerry DePoto, uh, who, who joined me yesterday. Moore and I have been arguing over exactly what it is he meant uh, at the end there. So you I have to I, play it again. You want me to play it again? All right, I'll play it again. You tell me. When you hear this, is he talking about bringing multiple players to Seattle or bringing multiple championships to Seattle? It's unique because of the depth, but you know it's a, it's exciting for us because this is the first time that we've you know really set our sights on on finding you know those centerpiece type players that can really drive a championship team, and and hopefully we're able to 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 bring one to Seattle, if not more. <laughs> I heard that as championships. I didn't, and now, now that you've put the I seed it in my players. mind, I, now I can hear how you see those players. Yeah. But when he follows up Because he said a championship team. He didn't say championships. He said a championship team. And oh, then he yeah. said, hopefully we can bring one of those to Seattle, if not multiple. I assumed he meant, hopefully we can bring one of those franchise-altering kinds of players here. Maybe multiple ones, because maybe that's what I want to hear, because I want it like, great. That To me, that means, like, we're going to go get Marcus Semien, and then we're going to go get one of these other guys. They got so much money to spend. I, I did a little piece. It's up at uh, 710sports.com if you want to go read it. And I, I'm trying to, like, uh, I, I was trying to essentially prove the point that I had made that a lot of people are arguing with, by the way, that this is the most important offseason in the history of the Mariners. And I, honestly, I don't mean it with any disrespect to what happened in the mid-90s, and I do understand that without without saving the franchise from leaving, there is no now, right? We're not even having this conversation without that. But because of the way they took back payroll, did the rebuild, took this giant risk, leap of faith, and, and kind of where everybody's at now, 20 years plus since making the playoffs, I, I think this is your ch- your opportunity. This is your chance to pay it all off. And and based on what SpotRack and some of the others have They've got $45 million roughly committed to payroll next year, okay? $45 million. If they wanted to get to league average from this past year, they would need to spend $85 million. <sighs> if they wanted to, and for everybody who thinks the Mariners are cheap, if they want to get to where they were in 2018 before this whole thing started, the rebuild, they, could, they, they spent $155 million that year. So they spent more in 2018 than league average, and certainly more than league average was this year. It wasn't that long ago they were in the top third of spending in baseball. So spare me the whole cheap thing. In order to get to where they were in 2018, they could spend $105 million in free agency. Think about that. Not over time. Like, 
on a year-to-year basis just for this year. They're not going to do that, and I don't think they necessarily should spend $105 million, uh, unless they're planning to take the payroll well over 200 which, by the way, I wouldn't have a problem with. But, like, the, the opportunity is right now. It's a good free agent class. There's some really good players available via trade, and you've got money to spend and a young nucleus that you are ready to build around, not to mention some legitimate assets in the minor leagues. It's go time. My question is, how much are you counting on those young assets being ready by the time you bring in these high-impact players? Because they're supposed to work together. The impact players are not going to carry the young assets, right? Well, I would say that there's both. Yeah, I think at the, you're, 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 you need that combination effect. Your young assets, some of them are already here. No, they're not all here, but Kelnick is here. Raleigh is here, right? Ty Francis, I would still consider a really young player just a couple of years in. Your young players are here. They've arrived Julio's supposed to be here next year. Your young pitchers, you already got a chance to call one of them up in September in Matt Brash, but the rest of that crew, we believe that they will pitch for the big league club next year at we some point. I think so, right? But aren't those also pieces that could be trade? They could be, move, but I guess my, my point is like you're ready. Yeah. And so if you add in the if you add in the 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 free agents this year, whether it's Simeon or some pitching or Chris Bryant or whatever it is, whatever guy it is you like that you think they should bring back. Like you're now at the point where you have the different layers that you need. You have veteran talent, you have mid-level talent, you've got very young talent, and then you've got the waves of young players below them in the minor leagues that can either be used to go get what you need or to fill in and be ready and continue this thing so that it's not just a one- or two-year run. You actually build something that is sustainable, and that's what we've seen specifically in Houston more than anywhere else, a sustainable product. Because that's what I was worried about is it sounds like we're going to do – what the people who say same old Mariners do is trade off all the prospects, get old people, and then not not get to the playoffs. No, I don't think so. But I would be shocked if they didn't trade some of the prospects. Sure, and that's why I have a hard time, like in my head, falling in love with these prospects that we've been hearing so much about. Here's the problem with that same old Mariners take from people, and this is why it is the dumbest phrase in Seattle. If you trade off the young players for old ones, then they say, "Well, you know, same old Mariners. You're just trying to, you know, just want these old guys who don't do anything, and everybody you bring in, you trade away all your best prospects." Okay. Well, if you keep all the prospects and don't go after the high price veterans, same old Mariners, just being cheap again, and they yeah. just want to use the young players because they don't have to pay them. You can't win. It, it, it is the dumbest point I've heard. And by the way, that payroll point is dumb. They've been in the top third not that long ago. Yeah, they spent less money over the last couple of years. Because young players don't cost any money. That's just the way the format works in baseball. If you're in your first three years in, in uh, of service time, you don't make more than five hundred grand a year. Pretty good money if you can get it, don't get me wrong. But in baseball terms, it doesn't add up to much. So why didn't the Mariners spend a lot of money the last few years? Is it because they were being cheap? No. It's because they were playing their young guys. Yeah, they, they, they were letting this young group come up together and, and, and see what they had and get that experience necessary so that they can now go take that money and reinvest it into the product. And you're right. Why would we go after and spend all that money on old players when the Astros are still a better team than you, even if you brought in a couple guys that are making $100 million? So, so now, I, now I think you're ready to go challenge the Astros. You saw last year that you were close. And what happens if you're able to bring in Semyon Chapman and a pitcher? You're a different team. You're a completely different team. We were having this conversation with Aaron Goldsmith yesterday, imagining an infield of Ty France at first, Marcus Simeon at second, J.P. Crawford at short, and Matt Chapman at third. Does that appeal to anybody? Yeah. With Jared Kelnick and maybe Julio Rodriguez and Mitch Hanniger 
and Jake Fraley as your extra outfielder. And now all of a sudden you're not starting Dylan Moore a hundred times a year. He's coming off the bench where he belongs and stealing some bags and spotting in a different place. Like that's the kind of team that challenges for, for championships, not the kind of team that just desperately tries to hang on and make a wild card. So I heard players, not championships. In fact, I never even thought championships until it was brought up on the show. But again, I, I, I think he absolutely was suggesting uh, multiple players in that comment. As for most important offseason, I did see on Twitter Mike got hammered a little bit when he said that. I think it's hard to say, uh, you know, anytime you get into an ever situation, uh, I think it's so easy to point to other things. I would say certainly, and <laughs> not with certainty now that I think about it a little bit more. Um, yeah, absolutely. At the moment, it's the most important. But when he talked about the players that he uh, was hoping could be brought in, uh, it got me thinking, well, what if you added those players to other Mariners teams? If you were able to do that in other off-seasons, wouldn't that be just as important? I think this is important uh, in that the sense of urgency, the sense of importance, and the general investment that has been made in this group, I'm not sure the stakes have been higher, and they certainly are for Jerry DePoto. Uh, you take a look at, yeah, you're going to have a lot of money to spend, but if you blow it, you haven't just blown the money that you've spent, but you've also blown the three years of the teardown. And as Mike explained, it wasn't a cheap teardown by any means. It wasn't, we're going to cut the payroll to $20 million a year for three years. No, it wasn't. They had to pay out a lot of money to get rid of the contracts that they did get rid of. It was not a cheap teardown. Yeah, it was still you know, quite a deal less than what they would have spent if they were building up, but it was not inexpensive by any means and also in what you lost in attendance and uh, you know along those lines there was big commitment in taking that step back and that needs to be paid off so in that sense is this the most important it's pretty darn important i will leave it at that so that was the Mariners week that was on 710 ESPN Seattle. Again, all of these conversations can be found on the individual show pages, on the podcast page on 710sports.com. Also on 710 Sports, a lot of posts. I've got the post on the Jerry DePoto show and the significance of what he said about what he intended to do and going after, quote, centerpiece type players. Uh, Mike Salk's article is up there as well. Just really, I mean, if you have not taken a good look around 710 Sports, you should. We have got uh, full-time writers breaking down everything. We have got reporters on uh, the teams, and we've got opinions from you know people who have been in sports and Seattle sports for a long, long time. There's a little bit of something, I think, for just about everybody on that page. And if you're a Mariners fan, we keep the coverage up throughout the season or the not-so-off season as uh, we we are in right now. So that is it for now. We will do this again next week.